God, in these moments, we come to you and, and we surrender. God, we, we come from weeks of pain, anxiety, stress. And in this moment, we just make ourselves available to, do, to you, to do what you do, God. Lord, we invite you in this space, in our presence, as we continue to worship you, God. We thank you for the God that you are, that you say you are, and for what you're going to do to us and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Well, this is my chance to honor the mothers, even though we've already done it. But um, if you are a mom and you missed the, the beginning and you're, you didn't get a flower, please see one of us. We want to honor you and, and thank you for everything that you do. Like Pastor Mark said, um, you keep our children alive. Um, my wife is on a little getaway with her friends, so I have to keep them alive for one night. So I, I, think, I think I can do it. Uh, but thank you, moms, for what you guys do and, and how uh, what you mean to us, and how you just continue to exemplify Jesus and all that and all that you do. Um, we we value you, so thank you. Uh, for those of you who were concerned and worried, I did make a full recovery. Um, I am I am fully healed. Um, I know many of you were wondering if I was going to be okay. Um, during our kickball tournament, I suffered a hamstring pull. I took it a little bit serious because we, we, were, we were the older team. There was a few younger, younger teams and it was all fun and games and we were just playing kickball and ha ha and then the score was kind of close and we had like 15 minutes per game and so I was on second base. I channeled my inner little league baseball base running and someone hit a pop up. I tagged up from second to third and I just felt like someone just took a knife and like put it up my the back of my leg and I knew that I had done something wrong um, so um, for the for all two of you who texted me asking me if I was okay uh, yes thank you for your concern I know how many people love me here um, but yes I I'm fine but it was it was a, it was a good time um, and if you watched the video last week that pastor mark uh, at pastor Mark's house that we showed for church home um, home church. The reason why I, I didn't jump was because I was, I was still nursing a bad leg. So they, they, they allowed me to not have to, uh, to make the jump or go through the, the contraption. Um, but hey, we are uh, just happy that you guys are, are here with us and joining us on, on this weekend. If you were here last weekend, you heard uh, Pastor Mark just talk a little bit about uh, just Acts 3. And we, we dug through that and heard an amazing story that he shared um, about a young girl named Emily and just the, the radical act of faith that took place um, in, in her life. Um, but just to recap, we know that uh, we're in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in, in chapter 4 today, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can, you can open up to there. Um, but in Acts 3, we know that Peter and John, they are coming off of, I mean, a high. They, they have prayed this radical um, prayer for this man to be healed. And we know that through that act of faith and prayer, the man is healed. So they are on cloud nine. They have all the confidence in the world because Jesus has come through. The Holy Spirit has done a work through them specifically for this man it had been 40 years, and he, had, he has been trying to get healed, and he can't walk. And they say, Take, pick up your mat and walk. And so 
he does. So things are going well for, for these two, and, and they, they are confident. They, they know that what Jesus had said before he left and, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's true, and they're seeing it in action. And so what, where we pick the story up is in the book of Acts chapter, specifically chapter 4. And so like I said, they, they, are, they are through the moon, and they, they feel like they can take on the world and their radical act of faith had, has paid off. But what we'll soon come to find out is that not every story ends the way it did in chapter 3. When we pray radical acts of faith or we ask God to do something, not always is there a sudden and immediate return. It wasn't like, it, it's not always, and many of us in this room can attest to that, it isn't always the case that when we pray for something, we get an immediate response. And maybe... You were one of the ones who came up last week. We, we challenged you to come up, and, and we were overwhelmed by the amount of people that came forward just to pray for you. And we came, and I, I was one of the ones who prayed for a miracle for someone's life. And I don't know if that has happened yet or, or it's going to happen, but there are moments in our life where we pray for something to happen, and we sit in this time of waiting, or sometimes, like we're going to see, a life is put on the line for the boldness, for the radical faith that we exemplify in anything that we do. It was because of their radical act of faith that produced a miracle. And this isn't the first time in Scripture that we see a radical act of faith producing some sort of miracle. We know that the woman who had been bleeding for years, she goes and she tries to find Jesus in the Gospels and she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she does. And what does Jesus say? He said, it is your faith that has healed you. So we see this, this corresponding of faith and miracles and things happening because of the faith that we put in to, to Jesus. Radical acts of faith do not always produce immediate results. This same radical act of faith, what we're going to see, also produced a test for Peter and for John. So we pick it up in Acts 4, verse 1, and it says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And that'll be key moving forward. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, the elders and teachers of the law of Jerusalem, uh, Annas, Annas the high priest was there. And so was Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John, and they brought him before them, and they began to question them. And they said, by what power or what name do you do this? So immediately what we see is a confrontation that occurs. Peter and John are now continuing. They said, hey, it worked the last time. We're going to now talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead as we believe it. And so there is this, this confrontation that, that it takes place between these three groups who are pretty much the ones in charge of who can preach and who can teach. 
at the, at, in that time. And this wasn't a, a, a subtle confrontation. In fact, in the Greek, it, used, it literally talks about a hostile confrontation. They didn't even wait for Peter and John to finish preaching, to finish teaching. They literally interrupt them in the middle of their preaching and their teaching to confront them in a hostile way. So they're angry. They're upset because of what it is that they are preaching about. They're being bold. They're on this, this, this cloud of confidence and it says the Holy Spirit filled them. And the, the, the times in Scripture in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes and fills people, we see some crazy stuff happen. And so we know that because the Spirit fills them, something is about to occur. This wasn't a, a confrontation where you, you get an email from your boss and says, hey, can, I, can you come to my office? I have something to talk to you about. This wasn't a, um, an angry church member who sends you an email to the pastor on Sunday morning about a concern about something that you preached about. This was a face-to-face, in the middle of their preaching and teaching confrontation, a hostile one at that. Specifically because they were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And really what they were getting at was the resurrection of Jesus and what had just occurred. What if I told you as I opened today that we were going to take a field trip over to the cemetery down the street and pray for the resurrection of the dead? Amen. Some of you would say amen. If you're new, you're probably heading to the door the moment I say that. But what if I said that? What would be your, your gut reaction? Amen. Someone is in the spirit over there. But what, what would your initial reaction be? And, and this is what they're talking about. It's something that for some of us, it would make us uncomfortable. Praying for the resurrection of the dead. And these individuals, these leaders feel that discomfort. They even disagree. And this is where we see that confrontation. But here's what we know. What Peter was saying was directly going against the Sadducees. Because there's two things that differentiated the Sadducees from the Pharisees. And that was that they didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why the song, They're Sad You See, is because they don't believe in the resurrection. So that's why in camp when you sing it, now you know why. Because, did you guys sing that song? I don't want to be a Pharisee. That, that one? That's the one. So the reason why they're so sad is because they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so what they're teaching goes directly against what it is they believe. And so they say, by what authority do you do this? The Jewish religious system at the time was very, very corrupt. In order for you to, to, to teach your teachings, you had to be approved by man. You had to believe a certain way. You had to fall in line with a specific set of values and beliefs. And these men did not abide by those. You had to have the authority of a group of people. And you had to pass a test in order to preach and teach. And they did not abide by those at all. So they're angry because they haven't given them authority to do so. And then to them, they're speaking blasphemy when they address Peter and John they don't even acknowledge that it is a miracle they just say by what authority do you do this 
So immediately what we see in verse 3 is they seize them because it is evening and they put them in jail for the night. At this point, you'd expect now that they're about to be possibly tried, potentially killed, because they are going against the cultural norm of, of what everyone else believes. Their, their theology is different. They're in jail. They, they, they don't know what is going to happen to them in this moment, but they do know that they have one responsibility, and it is to fulfill the work of Jesus. In the midst of them being taken captive, we, we know that many hear the message and 5,000 believed that day. And up until Pentecost, we thought that was a big, a big deal. At Pentecost, we're like, oh man, that was a lot. And in this story, 5,000 people believe. And it is amazing to me that they're standing, at, at the time, they're in this courtyard and they're preaching 5,000 people, it's remarkable that 5,000 people hear this and give their lives to Christ. And they see what happens to these individuals because of what they preach. And even then, 5,000 people give their life. Was it worth it? Was it worth it for Peter and John? That's the question they had to ask themselves. Would it be worth it for you? Would it be worth it to put everything on the line to proclaim the name of Jesus, to tell of his resurrection story. Is it worth it? What's interesting is that persecution and growth are common themes that go together in the church. The time when the church has endured its greatest persecution are the times where the church has seen its most significant growth. Percentage-wise, it is the fastest growth that we have seen in church history. Whenever there's persecution tied to growth, it is the fastest that we see. Proof, 5,000 were, were, were given their lives to Christ because of these men and what they were willing to risk. Growth under persecution is its purest growth because it filters out false confessors. This means that believers, they had to come to Jesus with nothing to gain. They knew what was the cost, and still they gave their life to Christ. They knew what was at stake. It wasn't the popular thing to do. It wasn't what everybody else was doing. There was nothing to gain from this experience for themselves, but they knew what they needed to do. It wasn't as they approached this giving their life to Christ as to what can I get out of this because what they could get out of it is persecution. How many times have we with lesser or fewer words looked for what we can gain from church more importantly than what we can give over to Christ? Things change when the human mind is put under pressure. In this case, a life-threatening situation. When I was a, a chaplain at the hospital, one of the things that we had to do was we had to have difficult conversations with, with family members. Um, and we would do this along with some of the other, other um, people on staff, some of the other team. And the families who were in charge of pretty much 
what was going to happen to this patient, we'd have conversations and say, what would, what would, if, you know, if they were under a coma, what does this person desire? And they'd say, we, they, they do not want to be put on a respirator. They do not want to be put on life support. The moment that they code, we are ready to, to pull the plug. Um, this was in every case, but in, in cases where it was pretty inevitable that this person wasn't going to make it, this was the plan. And nine times out of ten, I would meet with that family, and we would have this plan, plan put in place, and the moment their, their loved one codes, the plan changes. They put them on life support. They go against what it is that they had agreed to, what they had committed themselves to doing for this person, because the time came and it got real and they didn't prepare themselves enough for the situation to commit to what it is that they said they were going to commit to. The plans changed when they were put under pressure. So what is our response when the church is put under pressure? What's your response when potentially a life is on the line? Your life is on the line. What is your response? What is our response as warehouse community when we are put under pressure? When, when we are called to prophesy, to speak of the name of Jesus, what is our response? One theologian says this. This is not my words. It's his words. When the church is fat, dumb, and happy, it's at its weakest. When a church is fat, dumb, and happy, it's at its weakest. Without persecution, a church is hollow. It may have a shell that looks big with prestige and a well-known name, but at its core, it is empty. If we aren't willing, against, willing to go against the cultural norm and not willing to challenge this community, we are weak. If we aren't willing to challenge ourselves, we are weak. And so the leaders, they gather, they get together, and at this point they, they really don't know what they're going to do. And I talked about the Jewish system being a little corrupt at, at the time, and what had happened is they had been known to be very prestige, and, and during specifically this time, what we know is that positions of leadership were just passed on to the next person in line. There was no training, there was no call to be a leader in the Jewish system. It was just if, if you knew someone, you became a leader. So these, these Jewish people that were put in place at the time didn't even have the right degree, if you would call it that, to be in these positions. And so they're, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to react because they're proclaiming the name of Jesus and what, they, and, and what it is that they have done. And they do know that Jesus has resurrected. And so they ask, by what authority do you do this? It's because Jesus' persecution that this man lives. And I'll, I'll read you the text. Here's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Here's when it happens in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. This is my one of my favorite verses. 
you and all you people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands healed before you. Jesus is the stone. You are the builders. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Pretty bold statement. He's calling them out. He doesn't fall back. He doesn't get intimidated. Instead, he goes out as an act of faith and speaks boldly, no matter what the consequences may be. Have you ever spoke boldly and not cared about what the risks were? Pastor Mark loves this story. When I was uh, very young, probably eight or nine maybe, um, we had camp meeting, and back then camp meeting was here on Forest Lakes campus. As a matter of fact, uh, youth would meet in the Schmidt, and then the main, the main uh, sessions were in the gym. Um, and if you young ones don't know what camp meeting is, it was like the best experience. Like we get went to went wild on Sunday. It was it was awesome. I miss I miss it. Veggie hot dogs on Saturday night, basketball tournaments. It was great. But I remember specifically one year, we um, my my parents. They are very traditional. You're going to sit with us in church. Um, you know you're not going to go anywhere. And I remember walking through the front of the, the gym entrance and seeing all these kids out there, like, just playing. They were my age. And so I'm, like, building up the courage to ask my mom to go play. And I remember we're, we're getting, we're finding our seat, and everyone's kind of gathering, and they're, and they're ready to, about to begin. And um, I asked my mom, I said, can I go, can I go play? I remember I was, sitting, I was sitting next to my dad. I went over my dad to talk to my mom. And I said, hey, can I go play outside with the kids? And my dad interrupted me, and he said, what? And I said, I wasn't talking to you, was I? <laughs> and as I said that, like, I got like this sudden urge to want to vomit. Because <laughs> I realized what I had said, and I did not consider the risks involved. And I don't know where that came from. I was a pretty, like obedient kid. I don't know if I saw it on TV, but it just came out and I'm like, oh my word, what did I just say to my father, Hispanic father, Puerto Rican? And he says, take me to the bathroom. And so I went and I, I, <laughs> I, I remember this story like, I'm getting nervous like talking about it. So I, I went out the gym, I went out this way, back to where the guy's dorm was, and at the time there was no bathrooms in the, in the back of the gym, it was just the ones by the pool. So I could have gone like out the door on this side, but I went out this way, I walked like all the way around the dorm, I took him like the longest way, hopefully he'd like cool down and relax, and we get to the, the bathroom and it didn't matter. I faced the wrath of a Puerto Rican father for what I had said. But I didn't consider the risks, and I spoke boldly to my father, not considering it. Maybe I knew what was going to happen, but I did it anyways. 
And maybe you found yourself in that situation where you have spoken confidently, not caring or not knowing what the risk may be, but you were just convicted that you had to say those words. And here, Peter and John are speaking directly to these men. And it wasn't just like a, a, a cordial conversation there. We know they've been confronted in a hostile way and they respond pretty aggressively saying, in case you forgot, the man that you put to death has now rose from the dead. And by that name, we heal this man. That's the name that we preach of. That's the name who's resurrected from the dead. And we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is bizarre for anyone to speak against Jewish authority during that time. They had no lawyers. There was no Supreme Court. They didn't have a defense. This was it. Like, whatever was decided in that moment was going to happen. There was no system to put them through. No one was going to fend for them. It was just them. They didn't have a, a court system like we do now. It was up to these three entities what they were going to do. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the path to confidence. You can't have radical faith without a filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is the fruit of a life that has given it all. And here lies the problem. We desire to have the boldness and confidence of Peter and John with a transactional spiritual life. We come to church, we leave, we ask for that confidence, and we don't put ourselves in a position to prepare for the moments when we're under pressure. Because the walk with Jesus is daily. The filling of the Holy Spirit is daily. In Acts, it wasn't a this or a that. It wasn't either worship in the temple and worship in the homes together. It was both. It was a daily occurrence where they were giving their life up to Jesus, surrendering, doing life together, and growing in Him. How bold are you willing to be are you ready to dive in? Some of what holds people back is being bold because of the consequences that it brings. And what if it meant jeopardizing your preferred level of convenience? If we're called to be bold, if you're called to speak out on behalf of the one who gave it all for you, what if it meant you being inconvenienced? Would you do it? You may never be questioned by a government authority like Peter and John, but I guarantee you that you have already or have will encountered a moment in your life where you were put under pressure to make a tough decision. One that would honor God, that would make life really difficult for you. It would be tough. It would be hard. Something would have to die. Persecution would have to occur in your life. A piece of you would be lost. The other one, the other decision to make in that moment is easy. I remain where I am. I'm comfortable. Nothing's going to happen. I'll, re I'll, I'll keep walking the same path. I'm comfortable where I'm at. I, I don't want to go down that path because I know something's going to have to die if I take that route. And I know We've all been there. If you've given your life to Christ and you're in this room, you've had to make that tough decision. 
It is when we are put under pressure that we are called to prophesy. Persecution and church growth, when they go together, it does radical things. The easy path for Peter and John would have been to not even push back. To say, you know, it's okay, we'll settle in here. We won't talk about Jesus anymore. We won't talk about the resurrection of the dead. We will listen to what you have to say. We'll just keep doing what we're doing, walking through. We're not going to call you out for the mistake that you made about putting Jesus to death. That would have been the easy route. That would have been the route that didn't, that didn't potentially have persecution on the other side. But if they would have taken that route, 5,000 believers would not have given their life to Christ. Kingdom growth under persecution produces extraordinary results. So let's make it personal. What has to die in your life for you to see your greatest growth? What are the things that you have to give up for God to grow you spiritually as a father, as a mother, as a friend? What has to be persecuted in you? What difficult decision do you have to make that in this moment you know that something is, there's a cost to that. But you know deep down that if you make that decision, the greatest growth is going to happen in your life. And you don't want to suffer the pain right now. But God says, there is greater things that I have for you. Just let it go. What has to die in your life for you to see your greatest potential and your greatest growth in Jesus? Radical acts of faith produce radical results. Have you prayed for courage? Have you prayed for boldness? Have you prayed for perseverance through the pressure that you may receive? What has to die in your life for you to see your greatest growth? Have you prayed for for God to give you the Peter and John experience where you may pray for something and, you, and it may not be the result that you had hoped for but in the end God prevails in the end Peter and John they're put in jail and, and it says that they say the man that, who we healed who stands before you even the man who was healed was put in jail can you imagine being lame for 40 40 years, you can't walk, and the next thing you knew, you're, you're put in jail? At the cost of potentially losing their life, they do it because it's kingdom growth. That's what they're called to do. That's what we're called to do, is to grow the kingdom of heaven. And if our church isn't willing to be put under persecution to go against the cultural norm, then we're weak. If we are not willing to go outside of our comfort zone, to call things out, to stand up for God in this culture right now, we're weak. So what's God calling you to do, to die to, to be bold for? It's specific for each and every one of you. It's specific for Warehouse. What are we called to be for this community? When we're confronted, what do we do? When we're under pressure, do we stand up 
boldly in a radical act of faith and pray in the name of Jesus and confess him each and every moment. So I'm going to ask, what has to die? Here's the challenge. Pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Have you prayed for a radical experience? Prayer is not an escape from responsibility. It is our response to God's ability. We don't pray to escape it. We don't pray to be safe. We pray so that God can do what he's going to do. That's why we pray. Radical acts of prayer produce radical results. And we say, God, I'm going to pray this prayer and I'm going to go along for the ride. I don't know what it means. I don't know what I'm going to encounter. But here's what I know. I want to grow and I want the kingdom of heaven to grow. That's what it's all about. Being bold for the kingdom of heaven. That's what Forest Lake Church, this is why we exist. If we don't, we're weak. It's that simple. True prayer energizes us for service and for battle. This is the foundation of Acts. And it's the weapon for Peter and John to speak boldly, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.13, the group meets and they're astonished. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these unschooled, the ordinary men that they had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing with, there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered the men to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they perform these notable signs, a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further from among the people, we must warn to stop for them to, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard. After further threats, they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed that day was over 40 years old. They don't back down. They don't know what to do with them. It's interesting that God uses these ordinary men, not schooled, not educated, because if they were, these entities would have said, oh, it's because of the education that they received is why they do these great things. But they had nothing. All they could do was point to Jesus. That was it. They didn't know what to do. And in the moment they receive another wave of pressure, they said, we're not going to stop what we're doing. We're here to do one thing, and that's to proclaim the name of Jesus. No matter what, we're not going to stop. My prayer for me, for you, for Warehouse, 
That is our attitude. That is the posture that we take, that we don't stop, that we be bold. We take the risk. We say, God, persecute anything in my life that has to die so that I may grow, so that this kingdom may grow, and that may we be in eternity with you. What has to die so that we can grow? May you be a Peter and a John. May you pray that prayer. May you act boldly, courageously, and know that in the end, Jesus has the victory. We may go through persecution, heartache, and pain, but our confidence is in Jesus. He said he would come back again, and we believe that. We believe in the resurrection power of Jesus. But until that day, may we act boldly, courageously. And when, when put under pressure, we prophesy the only name, and that is the name of Jesus.